0: I, I do want to intro, but 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 John, I'm afraid I can't pronounce your last name, and I'm going to be very embarrassed when I try.
1: Well, then I'm going to make I make you try a few times first.
2: <laughs> I'm John Mahias in New York. I'm Zach Smith in uh, Los Angeles. This is the We Eat Art podcast,
0: where we
1: talk to our real live visual artist about... I sit there and try and figure out, okay, this is how I'm going to move to make this gesture or this thing. It never turns out.
0: And this week, we're here with... John Palipchuk. Where we
1: talk about... What I would consider a good day. Being in the studio and making things, whether they turn out or not, is a really good place to be.
0: John Palipchuk. Yeah. Good name. It's a good hockey name.
1: It, it could have been a good hockey name. I was not built for hockey.
2: I heard Leonard Cohen say he was, like, the worst center forward in the fifth grade oh, yeah. for hockey. But I just loved the idea that he was playing Leonard Cohen. Oh, yeah, yeah, character. yeah. You know, like, I want to see that movie. Yeah. Just like a movie of two hours in <laughs> the life of, like, fifth grade Leonard Cohen playing yeah. hockey. Like, the league laugh yeah. at me, you yeah. know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm writing lyrics in the penalty box. <laughs> right. You're just
2: paying attention to the wrong things. like
1: just. Yeah.
2: The puck uh, like a lover. Yeah. <laughs> John Palipchuk. So we'll start in the hockey days. So it's snowing. Yeah. We're far away in uh, Winnipeg? Winnipeg. Is that where you're from? Yeah. yeah. So you were born. What was that like?
1: I was born. Uh, my My mother was 44 years old when I was born she'd been married to somebody else and she was told that she couldn't have kids and after 18 years of marriage with this guy who is apparently quite abusive they finally got an annulment because she couldn't have kids so then when she met my dad they didn't think that they were going to ever have kids and then she started losing weight and feeling sick and she went to the doctor and found out that She was pregnant. Do
2: you usually gain weight when you're
1: pregnant? Yeah. No, my mom thought she was going through menopause. And so anyways, uh, I guess I was born about a month and a half after that. Oh, wow. A month and a half premature. So I always sort of had this feeling of like I either shouldn't have been or, I don't know, something like that. And I grew up, my dad was from Ukraine, and he had come to Canada around 1951. And so... I grew up with parents that were like senior citizens. doesn't seem old now, mm. but back then it seemed like it was quite old. And I went to church with them. I well, was they an were altar like, boy. She
2: was like 40 when you were a child, like when you were born.
1: 44 when I was born. My dad was So by was the time 48. you were a
2: teenager, she was yeah. in her 50s. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah so she was old, yeah. especially compared to your friend's parents. Right? Oh,
1: yeah, completely, yeah. And so I only hung out with like their friends. I used to get pulled out of school to what I, what I call work the funerals as an altar boy. So I would, <laughs> I would get to miss school to go and do like Mr. You know Whoever's funeral. Because my mother was the youngest in her family. And my father's family stayed in Ukraine. Everybody that I was around was always like a senior citizen. And so that's sort of what my childhood was like
2: were you detached from school? I mean when I was a kid I would go to like I would go to school on the east coast and I knew those kids yeah. and then on I would, in the summer I go to summer camp here right. on the west coast and I didn't know anyone and for 3 months I still didn't know anyone really right. like we cuz they had a stronger bond like was that you were just sort of outside when you were with
1: Well other I kids? mean cuz we we also ended up moving a lot my dad had this thing about Buying, not buying houses and selling them to flip them, but like always sort of trying to move up because he he worked for the railroad and he didn't make a lot of money. And so any of his savings were basically in the houses that he had owned. Mm. And when my mother and him got married, he had a couple of rental properties that he had gotten together. And one day a woman who was paying the rent came to the door with her nightgown on and it was open And my dad was there with his partner in the sort of little business that they had, Steve. By the time my dad had gotten home, Steve had told his wife that this woman had opened the door with her nightgown open. My mom was like, you're selling all of the properties. So he sold all the properties. And so I never really connected with a bunch of kids in school because I was there. You know, Kindergarten was one. Then we moved after kindergarten. Grade one to grade three was another school. And then grade three to grade six or grade seven was another school. And then... At that point, I just refused to actually do anything in school. Mm. So I would sit in the hallways and wait for class to be over, and then I would go home. And for some reason, the teachers never really bothered to convince me to actually be in school. Like, I would go to school, but I wouldn't go to class.
2: Your stories I've heard of the Canadian education system is that it's it's usually fine, but then, if, like, if you don't want to, oh, yeah. it's super relaxed. You, yeah, you
1: know. <laughs> They're, yeah, they'll apologize. You No, it's okay, buddy. You don't have to come. Today.
2: <laughs> they, were, they were hippies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> At that point, I didn't have any grades because I didn't take tests or anything like that. And so then my parents put me into a private school thinking that this is going to you know, make things a little bit better. And it did for a short time. And then once that junior high school was over and I went into high school, they put me into this Catholic boys uh, high school. It was very football-heavy, and I liked playing football, but I didn't like to be forced to play football. And I fucking hated that place. Like, How old were you at that
2: point? 88, so... You're
1: like a teenager? Yeah, 15, 16 years old.
0: So obviously somewhere here you,
1: you said to yourself, I'm an artist. No, you know what? Sort of, but not really. I wanted to be a rock star from, oh. like, 6 or 7 years old. That was like, I wanted to be a musician. So I learned how to play guitar... Never really learned that well, but you know I tried. But then when I think about it, like all of the kids that I would have been hanging out with, that had I had sort of regular friends, would have been into punk music or into new wave music. But the guys that I hung out with were these two Polish guys across the street who were super into Iron Maiden and and Priest and stuff like that. And rather than turn the corner into sort of better metal, I got into hair metal, and so that was what my whole musical. So you
2: like went. Given the choice between, like, from Iron Maiden to Guns and Roses or Iron Maiden to Poison, you went Poison. Went poison, Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, Small, no. like, choices in life. I know. <laughs> you know, just yeah. determine your <laughs> whole, no. there you go. Yeah.
1: At that school, I, I really hated it. And I couldn't get along with any of the people there. And so then there was a, a Ukrainian Catholic boarding school in Roblin, Manitoba. That was, it's five hours northwest of Winnipeg. It sounds they, like
2: you're just describing, like, a remote location where a monster came up from under the sea. When you say, like, that sentence to me is just yeah. like.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's, there's really not much up there. You know, fine people, but not much.
2: Fine, people.
1: <laughs> the crazy thing is, is that I think there's still, like, 16 hours of Manitoba if you drive straight north from there, which is kind of nuts to me. But this school, had the thing that attracted me to it was uh, they did a tour every year. The entire last month of school, they'd do a tour of Ukrainian music, uh, like dancing music and, and choir. And so because I wanted to be a rock star, I thought this was... The sort of thing. It's a clear path. It's like <laughs> it's like the mailroom. It's sure. a performing arts school. Only I'm not.
2: I always I, wonder what, what happens <laughs> if people want to be rock stars. And they live in Canada.
1: So then that's where I ended up going to high school, uh, and realized that I got like no education whatsoever. And then ended up going to to college in in Manitoba. The entire time I was in school, I wanted to be a musician, so I was playing in bands. When you're listening to hair metal, at some point, when Nirvana happened, you either went country music or you went alternative music and so rather than go country i went alternative so then i got into
2: i guess in canada yeah, yeah. I mean, it hadn't occurred to me so, so that the the billiard ball of nirvana right. knocked you straight
1: yeah <laughs> sort of i mean it's straight as like red hot chili peppers and primus could possibly be Oh,
2: but it I was maybe also, That's like a the whole podcast. Yeah, no.
1: It, again, you the know. funk
2: was was really in you because of your upbringing <laughs> right. in the icy wilds yeah, yeah. of the Ukrainian yeah. diaspora.
1: Seven years old, you're going to get an instrument for Christmas. What do you want? I want drums. What do you get? An accordion. Ten years old, you're going to get an instrument. You, you're done with the accordion. What do you want? Drums. Parents,
2: parents don't buy ten year olds drums.
1: <laughs> no, they buy them organs.
2: <laughs>
1: Played in bands for a while and then started failing university like all of the classes that I took because I was focusing on what really was fucking horrible band. Like you know when you look at pictures of yourself when you were in high school and you're like wow I look like an asshole but it's kind of yeah what, it's kind of What was cute what was the still, name of your high school band? Gingerbread man.
0: <laughs> it was like
1: a, a gingerbread man pressed out of skin. <laughs> and like at least at some point when you hit 40 and everything that you did in your life preceding 6 months past where you're c- currently living you can tolerate to a certain extent that is one thing that i still cringe at when i you, i can't listen to it it's it's that bad
2: yeah. <laughs> I like to go skin you got to go look it up man, it's good boot leg yeah <laughs> i've got
1: uh, probably 3 or 400 cd's left so wow yeah you're welcome to them <laughs> uh, so then i got put on academic probation in school and the drummer in that band had tried to get into art school because he wanted to he, he was super into, what was this show, 30-something, where they're all ad agency guys or something. So he thought, his dad said, if you go to art school and get an art degree, then you can become an ad agency guy. That
2: is the most (laughs) ass-backwards thing I've... I mean, it's true, but that as an aspiration is amazing. Yeah. That's kind of like someone saying... If you want to be a painter, right. what you need to go do is go to a really repressive Catholic
1: school, right. and I need to slap you. Right, as a plan. So he tried to get into art school his portfolio, and they rejected him. But then he found at the University of Manitoba they had a, a backdoor plan, and that was you could take the studio art class. And if you got a B in the studio art class, then you automatically got into art school. And so he said, I'm taking this art class. You should take this art class and i thought okay it's going to be maybe an easy grade and i won't get kicked out of school and i took you it that actually that was one of those yeah <laughs> and i wow. took it and i realized immediately what i always wanted to do in music i couldn't do but what i i could do it in art because it was like a completely different way of of communicating it made a lot more sense to me the emotions or whatever it's, translated for me visually and using different things like the text like in a song it doesn't work for me I'm not like that but in art it, it did work and so got into art school and how old were you when this discovery happened I think 94 95 so 22 23 in, years old you're in college yeah yeah and I had already like screwed over four years or three years of school just not doing anything to started an English degree Failed out of that. Started an economics degree. Failed out of that. And so art was really like the last chance. And it wasn't like my parents saying, oh, why don't you like figure out what you want to do for your life? Because my dad's concept of of college literally was you go there, you go for a certain amount of time, and when you're done, you decide that you're an engineer. And I'm like, that's not how it works. He just now. had faith in college. Yeah. Was it was higher education. You just, yeah. I want to be a doctor, so I go to college for a few years. You don't need to take doctor you just take college you know right <laughs> third grade education from ukraine yeah and then i started making these oil paintings that when i look back at were pretty bad and then i had a couple of friends who encouraged something that i found a lot more interesting and a lot more sort of satisfying making the scrap art because for me it was this idea of like the materials didn't matter was the idea behind the actual thing so if you're trying to convey some sort of emotion or some sort of concept, how you get to that point doesn't really matter. It's literally like that the idea is there, the The thing that you make doesn't need to exist after the idea has been passed on.
2: Were, the, were there the other artists that you started looking at at this point or were you just kind of purely going on your instincts? Um,
1: pretty purely going on instincts. I would look at some stuff because we did have to take art history classes. Yeah. And I was encouraged because my professors really liked my oil oil paintings. What were they like? Big, messy, thick. I
2: mean, were they like proto these or were they Mm, something totally different?
1: Only in the respect that there were some sort of animal characters in them. But it was just thick paint. You know, I didn't know anything about painting, even though I was taking painting. So, you know, when everyone was working on these canvases that they bought at the store, I found out how to stretch a canvas and I made like a, I think it was like 6 feet and 10 feet long canvas to paint on just because I thought, why the fuck not, you know? That's the one thing that I thought was really good about going into art school not knowing anything was that I didn't have any rules. The funny thing that happens in art school is you think that you go into it with no rules, but then everybody sort of thinks, well, this is what I want to try and do. For me, I didn't even know what I could possibly do, so there was nothing to stop me from trying to, like, achieve something. It Mm. was just pure outsider, naive artist.
2: I think a lot of more expressionist art being made now Mm -hmm. is actually the result not just of that, but also the art school not even really knowing how to... or not even trying to teach people. Like, even people who go in with every intention of, like, learning how to paint, like, Willem de Kooning, right? in most art schools, they can't even tell you that. You know what I mean? And they don't bother. They're just like... Well, you learn how to paint the figure, and you learn a few like basics, and right. then they're like, "You're a sophomore now. Do what right. you want." Yeah. And so you get people who have these paint techniques, which are totally weird because in the beginning they were just trying to learn how to paint. Yeah, you know, yeah. like they don't look like anyone mm-hmm. else. It's not because they they went like, "Okay, Jasper Johns, and then William de Kooning, right. Then you know, and then me. It's just like they were like, "How do I make something red?" Right. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like a kid. You know. I, I look at my kids' drawings, you know, when they're three, four years old, their drawings are fucking amazing. And as soon as they start learning what they're doing, that's when the whole thing falls apart. It locks up. Yeah, you yeah. know. Prior to those oil paintings, I went through a phase of of making abstract paintings, and I was just tickled that I could make something that looked kind of neat. You know, my professors were pushing me to do the oil paintings more, but then the two buddies that I had at school really encouraged this scrap art thing that I started doing. Were
2: those the people who became like the Royal Art Lodge? Yeah,
1: it was Michael DeMonte and Adrian Williams. And I looked up to both of them because I thought that they could do anything they wanted. You know, me not having any drawing skills, render-wise or anything like that. I always thought, wow, like if I had that ability, then I could do all sorts of stuff. But what they were saying is like, well, look, you've got this other ability. You know, you're putting these things together in a pretty... Cool way, so just drummer. do that. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> you mentioned you started doing animals. Where did the animals come from?
1: You know what? I really don't know. I don't know why. I think that if anything, it was probably this attempt at at having something that was a surrogate for something else, so that you could have some type of interaction. You know, I never thought of my childhood as being bad in any way, but it, I also sort of feel like when i was around grade 7 grade 8 that this weird sort of blinder thing happened to me and i like i don't remember and then i got into like hair metal and like i was an idiot and then when i got into art school it was like something lifted off me and i could see life a little more clearly and that clarity made me also recognize like i really didn't need to grow up knowing where the safety deposit box key was so that when my parents died, because they were going to die literally at any second, according to them, I would go to the bank at fucking nine years old, open the safety deposit box, get the will out, and like deal with all of their burial and stuff like that. Right. You know, That was a little weird. Because my, my aunts, my mother's sisters, both right around the same time, uh, started degrading. They were They were about 10 years older, 10 and 12 years older than my mother. And right around the same time, they both started degrading uh, mentally in a way where all of the things that they had experienced throughout their lives, all of this lore that my mother had told me about, like my Aunt Isabel's husband going out to shoot a bear or shoot at a bear in their chicken run, but then he got shot by his brother who was apparently retarded, who was in love with her and all this weird sort of shit. Like when I was a kid, I was like, oh yeah, that's what happened to my uncle you know it didn't even occur to me that that was some weird human interaction that was not necessarily normal you know then i started not necessarily thinking about these interactions between people but sort of like letting them out through the work through characters talking to each other or animals interacting with one another i also sort of like this idea of something that could be considered cute also being malicious or or somehow not so cute.
2: You said emotion, like, was like one of the first things you said to describe your own work, and right. like the most recent show that I've seen of yours is almost all just these big faces, like a yeah. big, almost like smiley face, simple faces done with like this simple kind of an expressionist technique. But it's like the whole point of them seems to be like how much emotion can you get, like how much distinctive. Like, facial expression, can you get out of just, like, a smile, like, a a mouth dot dot, you know? And that just kind of seems to carry through just how much you can get.
1: Right. It's something that I wasn't intentional, but I think that what I I needed to do was get back to the simplicity of just making things and not thinking about where they're going to go or how they're going to do or any of those sorts of things, but just making things for the sake of making things. And I realized when I started making those paintings that they were very connected to drawings that I had done when I was in grad school at UCLA in the late 90s, where I could convey a certain emotion through sometimes this most simple gesture. And this is, I sort of feel like when I started dicking around with these these paintings that I, I recognized that that there is something very liberating about being able to just Draw a line. That if that line is in close proximity to two other things, sort of that look a certain way, it's a whole different thing, you know. And and sometimes I wonder when I'm looking at them whether I I'm seeing things that other people are not seeing. So it's nice that you recognize that simple gesture as emotion too.
2: Yeah, I mean that's I mean people always use like emojis now, right? You know, and they have these slight variations. The interesting thing about those paintings is that they combine like, a sort of idea that everybody has in contemporary art that, like, a un, a non-rendering stroke, like, right. that is used in abstract art is expressive. Right. It expresses something. Right. But then this other idea, which is now a popular culture, which everyone is, which is just these little faces express. Right. And then, like, you're kind of combining them. Like, I, I wonder what you think about these, actually. You know, when people, like, pass around, like, a picture of, like, a fireplug plug uh-huh. or the back of a car, or a manhole cover that just yeah. happens to look like a face. Yeah. But it looks like such a specific emotion yeah, yeah. that there's like a meme you can stick under it. It's just not yeah. just a smile. Yeah, I was thinking the
0: same thing.
1: Yeah, I, I used to sort of walk around and take pictures of things that look like faces yeah. all the time, and I would always see faces and things. Yeah. I, I mean, I might have been thinking about that with these paintings too, but it was was not a conscious effort. Right,
2: yeah. The other thing I wondered about just is probably more of a historical footnote than anything, is like, do you ever feel, as somebody who kind of... You got on a, a track of just doing a sort of raw imagery and like accepting yourself as, like, I'm naive in a right. certain way, but you looked up in the beginning to people who you felt like had more technical sophistication. How long did you feel like, I'm missing out on something I could be doing? Or did eventually you just go, you know what, what I want to say is in this direction?
1: Right around the end of my undergrad, like around 1996... Is when I recognized that it didn't really matter that I couldn't do it, and it was just better that I could do what I could do, and I should just focus on doing that. Mm. I think that that got cemented at UCLA because I actually did try and work in a, a much more controlled, rendered—I don't really know how to explain it—but like a yeah, rendering no, I mean, way. Like I tried, to me. I tried to do that, and I recognized that, like you know what, you can't do it, so do what you're good at.
0: I feel like a lot of people would look at your work and really want a narrative. Do do you see that happening where people need a storyline to
1: it? Yeah. From 2005 to 2008, this was the sort of fundamental thing. People were pretty into my work. It was selling really well. And one of the things that I felt drove my work was this constant fear that my mother was going to die. And she died. And... part of me was like if that motivator is now gone then like what am i doing you know i can't keep rehashing that emotion if that emotion is sort of for the most part gone the bad thing that was happening was that the demand for the work was still quite high and the pressures that i was getting from galleries was pretty high as well and so I had sort of decided that I was going to abandon the narrative to a certain extent. But because I also had a really hard time saying no to anybody, I didn't abandon it. And so mm-hmm. then we ended up moving to Canada after my mother died so that we could be around my dad. And we figured he was going to live well into his 90s. And in 2008, he got sick and he died. And it was at that point that I realized for sure, like, okay, now you're just a full, you're just totally full of shit. You're trying to mine this idea of what your art has become. You know, you're trying to continue on this path or this process, but it's completely insincere because you know what? I love my dad. I love my mom. But when they died, I was fucking relieved because that stress of worrying about them dying all the time was gone. There was a whole morning dealing with the loss and the grief. But ultimately, I was fucking relieved. I was carrying that shit since I was seven or eight years old, just fucking constantly worried. You know, that every time the phone rang, I'm waiting, I pick up the phone, waiting to hear that it's one of my parents so that I know that they're still okay. And it's not somebody calling to say, this is what happened. In 2009, when I did the first show at Petzl after my father had died, I had decided that because I had gotten so sick of making these characters, I was going to completely abandon it. I was going to make things out of things I didn't know what I was doing with. I was going to have some things manufactured for me. I was going to strip it of all of its narrative and just make things. And the funny thing is is that people expected a narrative. People wanted me to continue pushing something at that point that I felt was insincere. The only people that were really responsive to this work were artists, which was really kind of nice. But on the other hand, when you are flattered by people for a certain amount of time, you want it more, especially being an only child who needs the attention also, on him all the fucking time. That's your
2: job, right? If and people also that's stop my job. ordering pizza, you starve, right? <laughs> you know? Well, that's not the other <laughs> I thing. Mean, that like, yeah, I yeah. feel like a lot of times people, you know, like they talk about in abstract terms, like, "Oh, yeah. you want the approval of critics and art right. critics," <laughs> like. Bad reviews mean bad sales. Means right. you eat less. Means you make less art because you get a day job. You know what right. I mean? Like people yeah, yeah. talk about it in like concrete terms. Like, yeah, I want approval as a means to an end. Which yeah. is the approval is, we eat.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, right. and, or
2: or we make more art rather than like having to do or, other crap. Yeah, just right.
1: to make sure you can be able to continue right. making more art. Yeah, totally. Genesis of the text in my work came from Adrian Williams having watched a movie, I don't remember what movie it was, and there was a line in the movie where a girl had said to somebody, we went to the Riviera and we played husbands and wives with all the boys. And he had written it on this thing, the image that he had made had nothing to do with the text, he was just writing the text, and he had written it big blocky letters. And I thought, that's really fucking cool what he just did, because you can do so much more with what you're doing, and this is also like not really having looked through a lot of art history and, and thought about text in art, it was just really an immediate thing for me. And so the first few paintings that I had done, I had scrawled the text on with a Sharpie or a, a big thick marker, so it was a lot more pronounced. And I think that somebody had said something about, you understand that that's part of the composition now. And I said, yeah. And they're like, if you want people to like really engage with the materials that you're using, if you write the text smaller, it'll draw them in closer. And so I was like, okay, and I'll try it. And so I tried it, and I liked that some people would not even see the text in mm. some cases, yeah. you know? And then that made me feel like, well, yeah, you're not really looking at what you're looking at. You're just sort of, oh, there's that, and I'll move on to the next thing. So it was somewhat conscious to write things down. But then the other thing that happened was when I started writing the text, because I work on most of this stuff on the floor, I'd be just laying on the floor was in a few paintings at first, but the text really sort of took off in the drawings. And because they're, you know, eight and a half by 11 and a little bit bigger, I was laying on the floor, so I would just write them with a pen. And that was the other sort of reason they ended up being small. Didn't want them to be too dominant in the composition of the work.
2: I remember, like, one of the first conversations we had was about narrative. I had seen a show of your work in Montreal, Yeah, and I... I write this column about like things that artists happen to artists all the time, right? And that other people don't know about. So I was like writing about how like the wall text in your show had a narrative right. that was pretty. It was wall texty, right? But then you are kind of a your work is kind of down to earth kind of thing. And so I call I was talking to you about that. Yeah. How did the titles and the text relate to this like expectation people had that there would be a story? Did that change, or or was that part of it?
1: Well, the text originated uh, because I would listen to a couple of bands from Winnipeg, uh, one of them being the Bonaducis. and Doug was amazing at writing lyrics. You know, and the things that he could sort of conjure with the words that he used, I found were quite beautiful. And so, I would write down things that I heard in the songs that he would that he would write. Then I would check the lyrics and make sure that I wasn't just writing down Doug's lyrics. At first, the text started off as just what I heard in the songs, but it it sort of evolved into not having to think about anything. Like, I would just write stuff down, and I wouldn't even think, like, this is what I want to have happen in this. And so the, the narrative that came out of it ended up being something that was a subconscious thing that ended up having a through line that people maybe started to expect after a while. Because one of the things that really drove me nuts is if I ever made something back then, then, didn't include text on it, and somebody wanted to buy it. They'd be like, "Well, can can John write some text on there?" Oh my god, they'd actually <laughs> ask <him. laughs> yeah. Wow, because it's not a John Plipchuk drawing if there's no text right, on it. Yeah, you know, just kind of hilarious. You know, when I think about it, I wonder at the time because I, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like the young guys that are coming up right now and and how there's so much speculation in the market. And when I was making things, I thought, well, the people aren't speculating this because I make the fucking greatest art in the world. And they're like appreciating every aspect of this, right? But then when I think about it, if somebody asks you for text, it's because they want their John Blipchuk that they bought to have text on it because I'm not going to be able to sell it if there's no text on it. Mm. It's funny.
2: I talked to collectors until I decided I didn't understand them. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't even second. I was like, I don't know what they're seeing. Yeah. I guess one thing that occurs to me about the text and the narrative overall, because mm-hmm. the narrative isn't, oh, my God, I'm waiting for my parents to die. Even right. It's, it's,
1: not, it's not overtly it's, that. Yeah. yeah.
2: But it seems like the story that surrounds a lot of those figures, they are or think they are more sophisticated than mm-hmm. what they are, and they're really very primitive.
1: Mm-hmm. Like That's B.
2: <laughs> it, it seems like it's like you're, there are all these figures, and they're just sort of rawly, they're like they're made of crap right but at the same time they're in these situations where they don't know that they're just sort right.
1: of right it's funny that you say that because now that i think about it that's like every few months i realize how stupid i was a few months ago <laughs> but when i'm in the moment like right now i think you know i'm pretty fucking smart i'm fun to talk to and, and i know that i'm just gonna end up going Oh, you know what you're an idiot and you're made of nothing <laughs>
2: but the sculptures is probably more like this but Actually, I don't know. Um, I'm pointing to a, on the radio, This I'm yeah. pointing to a face that you made. Yeah. But like when you make a piece, do you know which face that's going to be? Or do you just start fucking with it? And then you go, oh, now it looks like this. And you yeah. go in that direction.
1: That's pretty much it. Yeah, and that's I've, all
2: of them are like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I found out quite early in, in my art making life that the harder I tried at making things turn out, the less they turned out. It was so much easier, and especially these new face paintings that I've been making. I cannot think about them at all. I think I maybe mentioned to you that I listen to Katy Perry. And I listened to it for about half an hour, same song over Firework. Also trying to psych myself up. OK. Like I'm, I'm good at something. So I listen to Firework over and over and over again. And at some point, your brain tries to follow a pattern of the music it gets into this almost meditative state and then the subconscious can take over when you're actually trying to make the thing i sit there and try and figure out like okay this is how i'm gonna move to make this gesture or this thing it never turns out and i have like probably 20 or 30 canvases that were taken off panels that didn't work out because i tried too hard you know and i think that in the case of those masks. One of the things that was so satisfying about making that work was that it was right after the economy had crashed. Nobody was buying any work. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, and I was just going to sort of make things, and however it happened, it happened. Again, similarly to when I got to UCLA, and I didn't... My whole MO was get an education and then go back to Canada and teach art. That was the world plan. Mm -hmm. And when I started making drawings, I would look at things that look like things and that's how they turned into the images that they turned into. And so the very intuitive way of working got a lot more sophisticated by 2007 where I was actually trying to manipulate things a lot more. But now I sort of feel like I'm back in that, that place where I don't think about it and it turns out into something that I'm sometimes happier with.
2: In my stuff, like I obviously have like things that have to be planned a lot, right. yeah. but I feel like the more I have an idea of what the final piece is going to be, the less good it is. And so when I get to the things where I'm like, it's going to be this, it's going to be this color and this color and this yeah. thing and this thing, and I need to draft this out. I need to do sketches for that. Then once all that shit is done, then I have to start painting on top of that until it becomes something I huh. didn't expect.
1: That's funny. I always thought that your work was really automatic.
2: Well, there are definitely automatic things about it. But like like for the Gravity's Rainbow illustrations, for example, right. it has to be a wheel, wheelbarrow. Right. Like if I don't finish with, if there's not a wheelbarrow in right. the page that's about a wheelbarrow, right. I fucked up, right? Right. right? Or like in the girl paintings, like it has to look like that girl. Sure. So there's always an element of like, I can't expressionist my way past that.
1: Sure.
2: But I found that when I have an idea, when I get to the idea, I then have to keep going and right. do a bunch of shit I didn't expect when otherwise it will just be crap like it has to like go into territory i couldn't visualize right right right
0: so john when you were going through all this dark stuff of your your parents passing away and you're you're making art about it did making the art actually make you feel better
1: uh that's a really good question i don't know that it made me feel better immediately i know that I, i am an unemployable person And art is sort of the only thing I can do, whether I'm successful at it or not. And as far as what I would consider a good day, being in the studio and making things, whether they turn out or not, is a really good place to be. And so Mm. it might not have helped me work through anything, but it helped me make it through that day. Not that I'm like laying in bed going, oh, God, my life sucks so bad. Because it was never like that, but... You know, you, sure. you gravitate towards your happy place, and that, to me, was my happy place. So, did your
2: parents see the work or respond? To not it? really.
1: You know what? Um, my dad, when I got into UCLA, uh, was disappointed that I wasn't taking chemical engineering. And I'm like, I did an undergrad in art, so I can't take chemical engineering. <laughs> and he's like, Well, <laughs> think think about it.
2: Well, in Ukraine, chemical engineering is a big deal. (laughs) Everybody
1: that comes from Ukraine to Canada hits the border, and they're like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a doctor. Do you have papers? (laughs) No, lost during the communist era. They they had never seen any of my shows. They had seen images in magazines and things like that. And my mom was sort of proud, but she never really understood it. Mm. I had had a show in Paris in 2005, and to them, that was like I was successful because I was showing in Paris. And it just happened that we opened the show on a Friday. My wife and I went to Strasbourg because we had never gone on a a honeymoon. So we decided we'd been married for five years. We're going to take like a little week-long honeymoon. And the second day in Strasbourg, my mother had died, so we had gone back. So to her, I had succeeded because I showed in Paris. My dad still was kind of like, when when we moved back to Canada, he's like, well, are you going to get a job? And I'm like, I have a job, Dad. And he's like... (laughs) Well, what do you do? You sit in your studio and you don't talk to anybody and you don't interact with anybody. You're not giving anything to anybody. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm making art. And He's like, but you're not, it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So they never really got it. That's Mm -hmm. all right.
2: I want to talk a little bit about the Royal Art Lodge just so that people who weren't there know what it is. Yeah. Because you hear the name and you know that it's Marcel Dezama is connected to it and you are. Mm -hmm. But other than that, we don't really know what that means really.
1: Well, this was right around the time that I was making this transition from oil paintings to what I call scrap art. Uh, I started hanging around with Michael DeMontier and Adrian Williams, and there was a show at the University of Manitoba Multi uh, University Center. Anybody could bring artwork in, and you, you got to put stuff in. And so we all made a bunch of stuff, and we took it in, and one of the things that I had made was this 8-foot-by-8-foot painting on drywall that looked like kind of like a picasso painting because i didn't know what the fuck i was doing Um, i always
2: wondered how things ended up looking like picasso paintings because (laughs) if you
1: can paint if you're an undergrad and you can paint like picasso all the girls think it's cool and so yeah yeah Yeah. there you go he's he's good looking (laughs) which you know obviously i wasn't one of the good looking kids in undergrad but you could always see, like, the good-looking guy that could paint paintings that looked like Picasso. We had made a bunch of stuff, and they had rejected things because they were too big, like this painting that I had made was too big. And I'm walking around this University Center uh, art show, and I'm looking because people had put price tags on their work and they had put these titles on their work. Because stuff had been not been allowed to be put into the show, um, we ended up going back to the sculpture Area And me and Michael and Adrian made 30 sculptures all together. Took them over to the show, made titles, made prices. The prices were like $10,000, which was like, people were putting $800 price tags on things. And we were like, you're a fucking asshole. You think that your work's worth that much? And we were like putting $10,000 and stuff. And then we made these fake names. I was Rudy Bust. Michael was Perry T. Thompson. And Adrian was Holly Nims Winkle. And the three of us were hanging out. And then Michael was friends with Marcel and Neil. Like right at the same time that we all started hanging out, the professors went on strike. And I remember it as being like the whole year they were gone. But in reality, I think it was only like three or four weeks. But we were given the keys to the school so we could go and work. And because we were there all the time anyway, it was just empty. It was a ghost town.
2: Was it a day shift or night shift that you guys were on? We or were there
1: all day long, all night long. Where'd you sleep? We would go home to sleep, but so we did you be sleep there. in
2: the day or did you sleep at night?
1: We'd sleep at night. I would know <laughs> because like this.
2: in every art school life, there's people who sleep during the day and mm-hmm. work all night, mm-hmm, like more mm-hmm. or less. And there's people who sleep all right. night. And sure. those people, both shifts are like we own the studio. We own the studio. There's They're- a bunch of people who are like grownups who come in for two hours and then go home and nothing ever became of them. They got real jobs. But all the people who like wouldn't leave or had sleeping bags in the studio, Mm -hmm. but like the day shift and the night shift, there was usually at every art school, there's like those people. And those people are going to be artists because they have
1: no other thing. Well, it's interesting that you say that because (laughs) when we were doing the art lodge stuff, the only people that were still in the studio that I remember was Carl Funk and Tim Gardner, who both showed at three hundred three. Right, they were there all the fucking time, you know. And we would be there. Like I would usually get there like nine or ten in the morning, and then go home at three in the morning, and then be back the next day at nine or ten in the morning. And there was literally nobody else there, you know, aside from Tim and, and Carl. Right, um, probably other people that I don't remember. But when we started the Art Lodge, if I remember correctly, we invited a bunch of people to come, and just it was supposed to be a drawing club on the lore became it was on Wednesday nights but when the that's professors were detailed on detailed lore yeah <laughs> no because that's what they would always say in any of uh, things we have meetings on Wednesday nights right but really the the beginning of it was we were just there all the time so that was my art education because Michael would bring in books to look at you know he was bringing in images of early David Hockney and <clears throat> he brought in the Henry Darger book that blew all of our fucking minds nice that was what it was. You know, it was just like a bunch of guys getting together, listening to George Burns records or Daniel Johnston. <laughs> that that George Burns record is really good. I wish I was 18 again. It's we so listened
2: good. to Coil and Sharp. Oh, really? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like,
2: like that bat, Maniacs in Living Hell. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's what we did. We made thousands of drawings over the course of maybe like two or three months. So when, when everyone graduated, we got a studio together and it was funny because at that point, Adrian had moved to Montreal because he was my buddy. Everybody was sort of buddied up, even though we worked together.
2: Right.
1: Mar- Marcel and Neil were inseparable because they lived together because Neil is Marcel's uncle. Mm. Michael and Drew had a band together called Eyeball Hurt and the Medicine. And so they were sort of inseparable. And me and Adrian would like to drink and get into trouble all the time. So we were sort of inseparable. So when Adrian ended up moving to Montreal, my buddy was kind of gone in the Art Lodge and it wasn't quite as fun for me. But we ended up renting a studio in Winnipeg that they had for probably 10 10 years that became the Art Lodge. And it's funny because nobody wanted to come to meetings when we first started it. But then once people started paying attention to the Art Lodge, then everybody wanted to be a part of the Art Lodge.
2: So you guys rented a studio. So this is like a bunch of rooms and you'd go in and there'd be people there that you knew sometimes and sometimes it would just be you. And
1: uh, The studio that we rented, because it was still slightly at the end of my time in playing in bands, there was a a recording studio called Private Ear where bands like the Weaker Thans and uh, I think Propaganda recorded there too. This guy Lloyd-, Lloyd Peterson. And he needed to get rid of half of the space that he had. So yeah, the recording studio on one side, and then this empty space on the other side. So we were in, ended up renting that for four hundred and seventeen dollars a month. Split it was, like eight ways. Split like eight ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. nice. so There was a jar. Everyone would put their money in the jar, and it was I think eleven hundred square feet, which you know everyone was like, wow, this is a big studio, which was great. You know, mostly it was Michael and and Drew that would be in there, sort of all the time working on stuff. Because Marcel, he had already started on his track of showing. Because it was the la- the final year of, of our undergrad that a curator from Winnipeg had brought his work here to show at Richard Heller's gallery in 96. Heller was his first show? Heller was his first show. Hmm. And they wrote in the newspaper that Jim Carrey bought drawings and Steve Martin bought drawings. Someone
2: from True Blood bought one. Right? Whoever Heller <laughs> like, is selling is weird.
1: And Hollywood. it was funny because for me it was like... Interesting to think about these celebrities buying Marcel's work, but that really wasn't what was interesting about the work. But all of the art writing that happened in Winnipeg was all about how, I remember they had written in their... Someone
2: from Winnipeg got out of Winnipeg. Got out of (laughs) Winnipeg. The best was,
1: there was one quote where he had sold, I can't remember how many drawings he had sold at some show, at his first show at Zwerner in New York. And they said, he sold enough drawings to buy a Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, why the fuck would you even write that? Like, who cares, you know?
0: The Ferrari meter. And the funniest thing is he
1: got audited by the Canadian Revenue Agency right after that because somebody had read that. And then he started getting phone calls from people like, I'm your cousin. I want to start showing my art, you know? like I think that's why he ended up moving to New York because he couldn't deal with his small town or whatever.
2: When was the drawing center show that he had? Do you know? Because I, that was, that was in, when I first became aware of his stuff. Was, was it Marcelle just Marcel
1: stuff or was it the Art Lodge stuff?
2: I was in school, I think. Because the
1: Art so Lodge was, was in the drawing time. center around 2001. Because there was that show, Ask the Dust, that started there and then ended up going to a whole bunch of different places. So
2: he did well. And then he kind of told people, like, yeah. I have a whole, I
1: have a crew. That's what I, he did. Yeah, he did. His first show at Zwerner. Had to have been in the beginning of 98 because I had applied to Yale and Columbia. Because Tim Gardner was going to Columbia and a friend had done the Yale summer school. So I had a friend named Dushko who was going to Yale. So I thought one of those schools would be an easier transition to go to. Um, But then I had a professor that said you should apply to UCLA because you'll fit better there. And so I had applied to UCLA. And then when I looked over everything, I was like, I'd rather go to UCLA. So I had my interview at Yale when Marcel was having his first show at Werner. So we came to New York, had his show, and then he came up to New Haven. And, and me and my friend Paul and him were hanging out in New Haven for a few days. Yeah, it had to be like early 98. Tons of other sort of things like that.
0: Uh, I wanted you to talk about the uh, gallery that you have going on now. You started a gallery?
1: Yeah. That friend that I had at Yale, Dushko, uh, started a thing called Paper Monument. He wanted me to do an edition for Paper Monument so that they could get health care for their one employee. And so I made an ashtray edition thing for them. And he had his friend James come by and get me to sign them. And then he was going to take the ashtrays and, and send them back to those guys in New York. And James brought them by and we just sort of hit it off, me and this guy James. And we would talk about this, talk about that, talk about art, and inevitably it came to like, well, I think this gallery sucks, I think this gallery sucks. Well, if I had a gallery, I would do this. Mm. If I had a gallery, I'd do this you know it would be you know wouldn't it be fucking amazing to show blah 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 things like that. This bullshit evolved into somehow we convinced somebody to fund us and open a gallery, and we were sitting in the gallery going, Fuck, we opened a gallery now, what do we do <laughs> um <laughs> And for me, the gallery is sort of the perfect situation where I don't really have to deal with the day-to-day stuff. I do deal with some of it, but for the most part, it's about putting shows together. And it's very democratic, the way James and I put shows together. But the, the curatorial aspect for me is the most exciting part because we can ask anybody we want, and sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, and then we get to sit around trying to think about how work fits in a space and what work works together and, and how things change when you light them a certain way. And, and that's sort of what has made me pretty happy about doing the gallery thing. What
2: so, were the things that you were thinking, like galleries usually do this, but we want to do that? What were the, what were the ideas that animated people um, wanting to do it a different way?
1: You know, I don't know. I, I think Mark Hagen is a very nice guy. But his press releases are like encyclopedias; they're really long, and and personally, I have a hard time reading through really long things like that. Especially okay. when I mm-hmm. so short press releases. Short press. What we've been doing, you know, <laughs> is uh, if there's an email that goes between an artist and somebody else that makes sense for the press release, we'll use that, or we'll use two or three lines. There's no sense in hitting anybody over the head with anything. Tim Gardner did a show with us, and he's known for his watercolors. And I had said to Tim, because in 95, Tim and I had traded. I got this amazing oil painting of Tim's. And I had always said, one of the things that James and I had come to this moment of, like, I like, do you ever see the painting we have? He's like, no, I haven't. I showed it to him. He's like, fuck. And I'm like, yeah, fuck. Check that out. And he's like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do a Tim Gardner oil painting show? He doesn't really make oil paintings but let's ask him so we have a gallery let's ask him. and i asked him do you want to do an oil painting show and he said nope i said okay <laughs> then do whatever you want and he basically had this idea that he had for 10 years uh well not 10 years five years but he apparently had been thinking about it when he started collecting these um paper towels that he wiped his pallets off with at the end of the day mm-hmm. and rather than throw them out he iron them when they were dry and save them and so he had wanted to do a show where he made collages out of these paper towels and so he came to my studio made two nine foot tall 16 foot long watercolor collages out of paper towels that were discarded off of things (laughs) that he had used for the past 10 years and so that sort of thing is something that we wanted to do like We knew we would probably have a hard time selling them.
2: So it was like projects that other people might not have done yet because they're not commercial enough. Because they're
1: not commercial enough. But then in the end, in some cases, things that we've done ended up selling fine. Right.
2: But at least you don't go in assuming you need a certain level of security
1: surrounding the show. No, I mean, it alleviates the stress. But I think that in the end, we sort of feel like we have been really lucky because we've gotten a lot of support from some curators from The Hammer, and there's this sort of small group of collectors that have been really supportive who are maybe they're longing for seeing stuff like that where it's not the, you know, Lucian Smith rain paintings for the hundredth time and that's the only thing I'm going to show. But it's like, what makes Tim Gardner a great artist is the way he thinks about color and space. And he did something that was completely non-Tim Gardner, But you could see Tim Gardner in that through and through. He fucking controls that shit. You Mm -hmm. know, he's really good at that. And so, I don't know. I don't think that we're doing anything that anybody else... short
2: press releases and letting people do (laughs) whatever whatever they want. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I've been pampered, but I always feel like I always get to do whatever I want. Yeah. But also, I feel like there are others who don't. Especially if your work is like more installation-y. Right. But still, you got mad enough to do to, to your own gallery.
1: Yeah. I don't even know if it was mad. It was just a lot of bullshit bravado. It ended up being that we somehow put, put it together. How
2: long has it been going?
1: We got the space in December of 2013 and did our first show. Not really our first show. We did a test show in April of 2014. I think that we've done eight shows now. So you don't do them monthly? We tried to do them monthly, but it, we feel like because at first no one ever came to the gallery.
2: I mean, it must take a while to just get people to know the yeah, gallery there. Yeah,
1: uh, it's getting better, and, and still, you know, I think when a couple of the other bigger galleries that like are, I know
2: that I know, I'm on the mailing list. You're not? Okay, yeah. Well, I don't, well, I don't so.
1: know. I've never really worked the mailing list. I would list. be
2: like one of the first... I live nearby,
1: and i right, like, yeah. yeah, it's John, you know? Yeah, I'm terrible about Promoting myself. Clearly.
2: Yeah. You haven't changed your name yet, which is like a big. Right. You should have changed your name to like John Silverfox or right. some shit, like ages ago. <laughs> yeah. That's <Yeah. laughs> where it all started. You said eight shows. I was like, oh, yeah. not doing monthly shows. Which no, is so we,
1: we found that five weeks is better because it just gives each show a little more time and there's a little less stress in having to have things turn over.
2: Yeah, I'm sure fast. the artists don't mind. I mean,
1: artists don't seem to mind. No. Yeah. So.
2: Is there a bunch of other galleries going around there's there? There's a ton of galleries there. there. Is it becoming, like, a gallery day thing? Like, people would know that there are openings at certain times and they all show um, up, or is I, it still kind of, like, they're just there?
1: There's a lot of art walk-type galleries, and so they organize, like, we're going to all open the same day. Yeah. We've sort of stuck with ourselves. But since Michelle Macaron opened, mm. somehow we tend to be on the same cycle as her. Right. And so we tend to open the same day.
2: Because I know that, like... Art Walk over here, uh, like it's a madhouse on yeah. my street. But there's no galleries that are really like real gallery, you know. Yeah. But then to get over there, it's like across Skid Row, right? And so none of I can't imagine any of the Art Walk traffic over here gets over there. And I don't even know what they're looking at half the Yeah, I, it's I don't just know like what people to- on the street. But then on that side of town, like I know there are a few galleries that are like you know, like they show. Art forum-y artists, you sure, know, like, yeah, yeah. But they also intersperse with galleries that just show, like, yeah, like, look, it's a daffodil,
1: right? Like a the, daffodil the type made of Star that Wars figures. The person walks into the gallery and says, "Is this your art? Did you make this?" Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of those, but then there are some other galleries moving into. So.
2: Like if there were just an earthquake and Little Tokyo got swallowed up. Mm-hmm. then it would be a continuous neighborhood. It could be, yeah. But I like Little Tokyo, so I don't want that to happen. Yeah. It's difficult. So they
1: just need a monorail.
2: Or I think a big slide. A big slide. Like an elevator with sure. a slide.
1: Yeah, that would like, work.
2: Like you could actually go up to our roof, and if you just built a slide, you could get most sh- of the way there. do both ways, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. It just has to be at any angle where one's lower than the other. Right. And you'll, the gravity will do the rest of the work. <laughs> you said the work was kind of, you did it to do it. Uh-huh. Do you look back at it? I'm just wondering, like, how much of it is to do it and how much of it is to look at it? Because if it was just to do it, you would never look at one and go, this one's not very good and throw it away. Right. Right? Right. So how much of looking at it do you do? Or do you like doing?
1: Um, well, with the, the new group of paintings that I've been doing, uh, I do quite a bit of looking at it, actually. I have the meditation phase, and then I have the whatever, the, the looking at it phase. Determining whether I did the right thing or not and whether the painting works as a whole because they're so automatic. They can be fucked up pretty easy. Yeah. I never used to look at my work. Uh, I would look at it when I had to see it again. Didn't ever really keep a lot around the studio. Would either go into storage or go to shows or do whatever. Mm. And so a lot of times I would have these moments of like, wow, I can't believe I did that. I don't remember doing it. But I can't believe that I actually made that thing that I think is pretty cool. How long
2: is the lag between, like, while you're making it, you don't look at it, you get it out, then
1: you see it again at the show? Could be any time. Yeah, like, between shows, it would usually be a couple of weeks.
0: You don't want to look at it because you're sick of it, or because you used to see all the mistakes, or because you're just done with it out of your brain?
1: Done with it out of the brain, I would say, probably.
0: Mm, Okay. That
1: makes the most sense to me. And also, yeah, I don't know that I needed it for anything else at that point. Mm. If it was gone into a collection and I hadn't seen it for a few years, that was always kind of nice. I like looking at things yeah. like that. But these these new paintings, I spend a little more time just because like I could probably make 100 of them in the span of a week or two. But not all of them would be good. They would all look similar.
2: But you have to decide if they're good, right? You have to decide so if they're how good. how long does it take to decide if it's good?
1: It's usually pretty immediate. Like I know whether it's good or not, but whether it's something that's good over the course of a couple of weeks is another story. So I, there are a couple of paintings so you that live were in with the it show.
2: while you're doing other things, and things. yeah, or
1: I just put it away and then bring it back out.
2: I like, can imagine that those face paintings like take less than an hour or something.
1: Oh, way less. Right? Yeah, you know, like, like five minutes. Sh- 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 Some cool. of them could be five. Yeah.
2: Right. How long do the different bodies of work that you made take? Like, I imagine the installations take, you know, months, weeks. They could, yeah. But um, other stuff.
1: For the most part, I mean, the like any of the paintings in the white book that have the glue, watercolor, yeah, like any of the
2: Blaffer Gallery. The Blaffer show. Gallery book.
1: Anything yeah. that has any of that sort of watercolor and glue mixed together, mm-hmm. the only thing that slowed those down was literally the drying time because right. those could be done in a day. It never really made sense for me to go back to them unless there was something that was really glaringly bad. Which is to say, not all of them are good paintings.
2: I mean, the thing that is interesting about a lot of your work is that, like, there is this sort of goopy, muddy, messy, mistakey thing. Right. But then it resolves into a level of clarity that you don't expect. Right. Whereas, like, making mud, like, being an expressionist and getting up with a right. muddy painting is a common experience for every sophomore. You know right. what I mean? Like, you just
1: do it, using right. a bunch of muddy paint. See, the other thing about that sort of thing is that I know those paintings yeah. were made on a deadline. Mm. I know yeah. that those paintings... So they didn't totally resolve for you into something. No, you'd... they had to get done, and they got shipped out. And, like, that one's that's a real stinker.
2: Yeah, I don't like this one either. Why do, again, no, now you have to look
0: at it forever and you have to remember the deadline.
2: That's
1: filling orders.
2: It kind of feels like what you expect. It's like right. the lumps or... It didn't keep going until there was like an invention yeah. that appeared that exactly. was a little bit yeah. different than what you'd expect yeah. if you just slung mud at the paint. Yeah, that's interesting that like the ones I, I'm not into are the same ones that you're not into. Mm-hmm. I envy anybody who can get a painting done in a day That's and yeah. it's good.
1: It's good and it's bad. Yeah. Then you have to bullshit people saying, well, how long does it take? Oh, well, you know, I don't let just it dry. Ruin
2: your bullshit?
1: No, I don't care. <laughs> okay. I just want well, you know. I I'm like not it. trying to fool anybody, but it's funny.
2: But you used the, to. Well, well, this
1: isn't the ruin your bullshit podcast. I've, <laughs> I've had people come into the studio. Oh, I love the work. I love this, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, how long does it take? Like, what's the process? And I explain the process. And they're like, You're how long does it do take? You stuff until
2: I like it. Yeah. <laughs> how long does it take? And
1: I'm like, well, you know, like this one, I, I think it took maybe 15 minutes. And they're like, oh. <laughs> and they're all of a sudden, they're like, okay, because it's not as good because it didn't take you three weeks to make it. No,
0: it, was, it took you. Because they're like, paying you by
2: the hour, apparently. It took right. you decades. It
1: took me decades. Because you
2: had to become that person. <laughs> right. And then you had to edit out all the, you right. not being that person very well.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: I, I do see, like, for me, they're almost like performances. Yeah. When you sing a line and it doesn't work, it took you three seconds to sing it and it didn't work. You right. sing a line and it does work, it takes you three seconds to sing it, but it does because you just got right. like right on top of that feeling. Yeah. And it it incarnates it.
1: Yeah. Know? Yeah. Totally. Some of the best songs were written in five minutes.
2: And then they're performed, but it's like the performance mm-hmm. is so much of a sure. it's like were you at top form when that Right. I mean, the nice thing about art is you can edit out all the yeah. the failed That's recordings.
1: Right. That's right. Hmm. Hmm.
2: so what are your plans for the future for the gallery are you just like you look out for people that you like and you're like i'll we'll try to give them a show or do you like yeah. have a specific ideas like more high concept
1: in any way? No, no 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 high concept just find some
2: people you like and show just
1: yeah pretty much yeah cool. approach some people that we like and always sort of look like they're the show that we have up right now is the artist named luis flores mm-hmm. and i was doing a talk and studio visits at cal Arts. yeah not mining CalArts for Youngblood, but just happened to be, he was taking me around to the studios. He wasn't even signed up for a studio visit with me. Mm. And in between two studio visits, I'm sitting outside, and I could see into his studio, and he had this figure. I thought it was just somebody in his studio, and I said, there's somebody in your studio. He's like, oh, no, no, come check this out. So I went and looked, and it's like this life-size rendering of him crocheted, you know, as you the, thought
2: there was somebody in there. I thought it
1: was somebody in there. Nice. You know, and with this video that accompanied this piece of him and his brother in this boxer's embrace, and he sort of very briefly looks at the camera, and it's on this loop, and then it's got this figure, this seated figure uh, that's based on the boxer, like the bronze. Yeah. And I thought this is fucking great. I don't. I'm kind of an idiot, so I don't really know how to articulate why I think it's great. I just know what I what I think something's good or not. There's
2: not a lot of artists that run galleries, or people not. who are like successful artists who like right. had a career. Like that's actually relatively uncommon.
1: I guess so. I never really thought about it.
0: Do you have a nice suit that you wear during this?
2: Yeah, I can't. <laughs> okay. I can't think of one myself. I mean, other than collectives, you know? right? Like, right. But I can't actually think of like one. It's like a major gallery or like a, you know, art worldy gallery.
1: Well, Gabrielle Curry is involved in Curry Manzuto, isn't he? Yeah. So. It's Maurizio Catalan. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not comparing myself to Maurizio You're Catalan. You're not the only one.
0: I feel like I know you really well now. Thanks for opening up to us. <laughs>
1: I, I'm an overshare. Thanks for having me on.
0: We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out John Philipchuk.
2: His latest work is all over the internet if you give him a good Google. And if you find yourself at 915 Mateo Street in Los Angeles, you can visit his gallery, Grice Bench. Their info is at gricebench.com. G R I C E B E N C H.
0: Hi, this is John. I'm going to be at Comic Arts Brooklyn November 5th with some of my handmade collage books and prints and masks. That's Comic Arts Brooklyn, November 5th, happening in Williamsburg Also, I have more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mahias Paping, or Tumblr, All Things Paping.
2: And Zach has a new children's book with writer China Mivel.
0: If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at we Eat Art, You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at we Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by no one yet and is produced by Papen and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, editor is Justin Asher. Thanks, everybody. Make your own culture. Sorry that wasn't funny.